Hello and welcome to Talking Sports Books, a monthly look into the world of sports literature and books. And coming up in today's programme, Peter Baxter, who's just released his book, On the Boards with Blowers, which chronicles his life on the road with the legendary cricket commentator Henry Blofeld. Plus, we'll round up all of the month's bestsellers from both here in the UK and the USA. And before we finish today, I'll tell you how we want you to get involved in future editions of the programme by telling us what you're reading and what your recommendations for a great sports book are. But first, as the nights get darker and autumn turns into winter, it's time for us to bring a little sunshine back into your darkening existence. It's time for a bit of this. So then to the theatrical adventures with test match special tales in On the Boards with Blowers by Peter Baxter with a foreword by Henry Blofeld. Now, Peter Baxter himself spent 42 years with the BBC, 34 of them as a producer of Test Match Special. Then rather than just sit back and retire and take things easy... Over a rather liquid lunch at a Chelsea pub back in 2012 with longtime colleague and friend Henry Blofeld, a plan was hatched to create a stage show which would relive some of the most memorable moments of Test Match Special and the stories that had never been told to an audience of what was, of course, an English institution. So 
with a couple of armchairs, a full decanter, but never with any alcohol in it, by the way. Off they went for five and a half years, touring around the UK and Australia, entertaining everybody wherever they went. And Peter Baxter joins me here today. Peter, we start at the beginning in your book, at the time of Frank Callahan reading the ad hoardings during a breaking play at the Oval, Howard Marshall, who was described as the father of radio commentary, who wasn't even allowed at the time to actually broadcast inside Lords, so had to run to a flat over the road to post his reports. And my favourite, which is the Australians using, quote, synthetic commentary for the ABC network in the 30s and 40s, where they literally did imagined commentary based on cable updates from a man at the ground. It's hard to actually believe in this day and age that those situations actually existed in anything other than folklore. It it does now, doesn't it? But I mean, you know, I can remember in my youth listening to uh, the, the little bit of commentary you were allowed, which is usually only the last two hours after lunch from Australia, on the old compact cable which was literally a landline uh, laid under the Pacific um, so right around the world on on an actual landline um, and the quality was terrible and it would occasionally just disappear in sort of whizzes and bangs and clicks and of course with no pictures in the studio the announcer just had to repeat the score because that's all he had and play a bit of music until they got the line back and usable um, so yeah we've come up we've come away since then when when you can sit uh, by a roadside in Pakistan with a little sa- satellite phone and point it up at, at wherever the satellite might be and broadcast in perfect quality. Uh, we, we have come a long way. Just going back to the, the beginnings when uh, the likes of John Arlott and Brian Johnson were getting involved with the BBC. I mean, I remember the joys of attending a BBC board interview. I mean, where these guys began their, their careers, it was all very, very different. I mean, we had uh, tales of, uh, of poet laureate uh, John Betjeman, lunch at the Guards Club. Um, Henry's route into TMS as well took its its time. It, it almost felt like in order to get into the BBC in the 40s and 50s, and maybe even in the, the 60s, it was a question of popping down to the Bar- Guards Club, rather, or, or St. James or the Groucho, making sure you had the right tie on. Almost. I, I, I mean, I joined in the mid-60s, and I had had six months in forces broadcasting overseas. Um, and I was... I remember the station manager at, at the BFBS station I was in saying, when you go to the BBC, they'll ask you if you can type. Just say yes, they never test you. So they asked, I said yes, and they said, here's a typewriter, you better do a test. <laughs> and I went for accuracy rather than speed, and somehow I got in. Uh, but it was it was all very different you know, then. And uh, it was almost, if you asked, they'd give you a job. It was, it was very strange. But yes, Arlott's own thing with the poetry is extraordinary. And, and his being taken on to Test Match Special is pretty odd because uh, he was told, and they'd, they'd heard him doing things for the World Service by then, um, he was told, you have a vulgar voice, but an interesting <laughs> mind. <laughs> and on that basis, he was taken on. Were you surprised as well? I mean, when you when you ended up on Test Match Special, how embedded into the day to day existence of ordinary folk 
TMS became, whether they were cricket fans or not. And I say that after the, the, the famous instance involving the cakes, which started to arrive from listeners all over the country after Brian Johnson's mention of cake on air. And you even had the Queen presenting you with a, a fine Dundee cake. Well, I think I was lucky to be uh, joining. I, I first worked on it in 66, but when I took over as producer in 73, was just about the time when it was really taking off in uh, so I was, uh, in people's consciousness. And I think what had happened was in 1970, uh, Brian Johnson was sacked by television because he was too funny, um, which wouldn't go down well on television. Uh, and so he joined radio and their loss was very much radio's gain. And I think that he brought with him a new audience who, who had known him from television and they, heard Arlott, some of them perhaps for the first time, and they realised they were listening to a genius. So they've got the, the entertaining Brian Johnston, who was making Test Match Special much more approachable, really, and more sort of, um, it was more conversational when he arrived, and the genius of the poetry of, of Arlott and the way he did things. So I think it was just the moment, and of course, at the same time, in the mid 70s, we started Christopher Martin Jenkins, Henry Blofeld. Um, uh, and so the, the program probably fleshed out a bit and, and just became uh, more popular. Our audience started to climb. And the Queen and the presentation of the, the cake from the oh, Queen. Well, yes. Well, that was, uh, I mean, that was a sort of culmination. <laughs> of, uh, she did actually, she, I mean, John had started it in the 70s uh, when somebody sent him a cake. And so, he thanked them, obviously, as he was well brought up chap. And and, mm. uh, and the next day there were two. Uh, and it, so it built, really. <laughs> so when we when I, I mean, if you get a call from someone saying he's from Buckingham Palace and the Queen wants to give you a cake, you naturally assume someone's winding you up. But eventually the chap managed to convince me that he was he was genuine. <laughs> and when the when the day came and we, we met in the committee room because it was drizzling outside, I remember, uh, and the Queen handed me this cake and she, a royal eyebrow was raised rather quizzically as if she didn't quite believe the brief she'd been given. She said, people tell me they give you cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I confirmed this was the case and then introduced her down the line of the commentators. I, actually, I think they knew who she was. Um, but they... And, and, yeah, Blowers decided to go for humour by saying uh, she asked how on earth we kept going when it was raining and he said oh you know we just talk about anything and everything and many people think we're much better when there's nothing going on <laughs> and she she didn't think it was very funny she just said oh how frightfully sad <laughs> but tell me did did Aggers really ask the queen if she'd he made did. the cake he ought to be in the Tower of London, really, shouldn't he? Yes. He, he's a, was it personally made, ma'am? And she said, not personally, but specially. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Good. I did find uh, also the answer in the book uh, to the question that um, me and, and a few others down the years have wondered. The Bond villain, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, oh, yes. was, there, was there any link? And the answer was, of course, yes. Yes, because because he was a member of the same club as as uh, Henry and and his father and brother. So when he was looking for a name of an evil villain, he um, he's, he went round to the to the club and and slumped into an armchair, called for the membership list, 
and there was a phalanx of three blowfelts when he got to the bees and he thought that'll do slammed the book shut and called for a glass of champagne <laughs> and that was uh, ernst stavro appeared although blowers always reckoned that his mother reckoned that uh, ernst stavro was part of the castle not normally shown to visitors <laughs> now it was uh, it was another watering hole or establishment in uh, in Chelsea wasn't it back in, in 2012 where you two got together to to plan what became the the traveling the traveling shows yes well we started just casually having lunch one day in a pub and, and you know as you do you're sort of chattering about the old days and and the owner of the pub listened in for a bit and said you two ought to be doing this on stage and I thought nothing of it but blows uh, had been doing a one-man show and maybe he thought that uh, he could do his sort of changing things a bit and let's try it as a two-man show. And so um, the next thing we know, well, I, th- yeah, as I, say, I thought nothing of it, but suddenly I'm summoned to a meeting with his agent. And uh, yeah, we uh, we went from there. We went, went round to the Chelsea Arts Club after meeting the agent and, and planned out how we were going to do it. We, I think when we started, we were trying to be a bit too worthy. You mentioned the early commentators and we wanted to be a bit more educational. But uh, after our first show, I think we realised that we were, we were on safer ground if we just told the old stories. <laughs> Well, the sh- the shows themselves, when you when you hit the road, I mean, it wasn't all plain sailing and uh, sold out venues right at the start. And you've even been out with your own flyers, uh, doing a bit of promotion as well. So I mean, it was hard work. Well, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, when, when we first arrived at the Edinburgh Fringe, we had no idea what we were letting ourselves in. Blurs had done a few shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, but really only two or three. Um, so he had a little bit of insight. But I think we, we were so naive when we first went there. And our agent then was not an expert on Ed, on the Edinburgh Festival, which is has its own sort of subculture, really. Uh, and there are thousands of these shows. So the main thing is just to let people know you're there, really. Somehow you've got to publicise it. And um, we eventually found that some flyers had been printed, although no one had told us. So we took these out on the streets and sort of handed them out uh, to people. And actually that, that I think, worked quite well. When we, uh, I found if I handed people, uh, the flyers had the same cartoon that's on the cover of the book, you know, of the two of us, done by John Ireland, a brilliant, brilliant caricature. And uh, people would sort of look at it and, and they'd always say to me, is he here? Is Blowers really here? And I said, yes, he's over there, handing out flowers. <laughs> oh, yes, we must come. <laughs> so that, that was good. When you, you got up to the fringe, how difficult did you find it to actually stick to your one-hour slot, which was half of what you normally did, because you did get fined for overruns? I mean, that cannot have been easy. Well, I'm happy to say we never actually got fined for an overrun. <laughs> we, um, uh, I suppose when you work in radio, you know that you're actually quite good at talking to time. So we always had a clock in front of us, so we knew what we were aiming for. And we we sort of worked out a routine where the last quarter hour was pretty tight and we knew how long it took. So if we were approaching a quarter of an hour to go and we, we knew where we had to be at that point. So, you know, our final run in was, was reasonably settled. But the, the trouble was, you can't you can't judge for audiences if they laugh a lot suddenly you're cutting material and, and blurs 
would sometimes forget that he he was doing a two-man show and not a one-man show and he'd go a bit off piste but, but uh, no, i think generally we we uh, we coped pretty well on that and got got used to it although well, again you're always adding bits that's the trouble well i have to say there was one very famous overrun of of an hour in your commentary in in Zimbabwe, when uh, you yes. uh, when you rewarded the man himself with with an with an extra uh, special duty, I, uh, I didn't I didn't oh yes when I sent him well the, the, the test match before he'd uh, he'd sort of set himself and decided it was going for a tight finish and it did and it, and he decided he was going to stay for it the trouble was they slowed the overrate down to such an extent that he commentated for an hour and a quarter before he managed to get the finish which was the first time ever that a test match had ended in a draw with the scores level which which is a draw because there were more wickets to fall it wasn't a tie um but the next test match uh, robert mugabe turned up at, at the cricket ground in harare and i said right blowers you're going to do the interview with him and i i went with him and held the held the tape recorder while he did did the interview <laughs> with with um, the president very interesting i wonder if that interview still actually exists it would be uh, quite fun it, it would be sad if it it didn't i may i it's just possible in the shambles of my study i have actually got a copy of it but i i'm not I'm not entirely sure. I have to say it wasn't all that revealing because he was told very firmly to stay off politics. Perhaps, actually, the most uh, the famous quote of the the Edinburgh uh, festival came from uh, from Blowers himself in the in in the restaurant one night after uh, 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 after yeah. the show. Well, we'd. Is this to do with Duckworth? It was yeah, just a, a a few days earlier before we went up to Edinburgh. Um, Blowers had. A few months earlier, he'd, brought, he'd, he'd been asked by a, a, a group, well, a pair, really, of, of musicians call, who call themselves the Duckworth-Lewis Method. <laughs> and they, um, they, they had recorded a new album, one of, one of the songs of which was called It's Just Not Cricket. And, um, uh, and Blurs was invited to rap, if you can believe it in the middle of this really well, all he had to do when they pointed <laughs> at him he just had to say oh no it's just not cricket or perfectly dreadful or things like that you can't get away with it and uh, my dear old thing uh, um and they had uh, test match special had invited these musicians on during a lunch interval um during the trent bridge test to perform the song with blowers doing his rapping and afterwards uh, blowers was talking about it to phil tufnell on the air and he said, yes, well, he, what he thought he said was, yes, the Duckworth Lewis method and blurs. But in fact, <laughs> what he actually said turned out to be the Duckworth Lewis method and blowjob. <laughs> so blurs decided to incorporate, he said, shall, shall we do that story on stage? I said, oh, yes, we've got to do it. So he told the story for the first time. When we were two or three shows into the Edinburgh Festival, and that night we went to this restaurant in uh, George Street in Edinburgh, and as we took our seats, blurs rather more loudly than I thought was strictly necessary. He said, I thought the blowjob went well tonight. <laughs> but a few other diners rather interested in what was going on. 
I would say it was, I mean, this is one of these uh, these great anecdotes in this book. And it's it's one of those where you can sit reading it uh, and you break out into these uh, spontaneous laughs, uh, which, which do tend to draw the attention of others around you, then suddenly start to stare at what book it is you're actually reading. <laughs> but, but, but Blowers himself, he did at times, or he does at times, take on this almost... And I mean this in a, in a very respectful way, uh, an almost Inspector Clouseau-like character. And I'm talking particularly about uh, being found naked in a lift, being pelted with bread rolls from a crew of people that were pissed in a hotel lobby. Yeah, well, he, he, he always said that my parents spent a lot of money on my education, but nothing ever prepared me for a situation like this. Yes, he, lo- he managed to lock himself out of his room stark naked in the middle of the night. <laughs> was trying to get to the night porter to get himself let back into his room but uh, unfortunately the lift that he took stopped on a floor where a lot of uh, rather drunk people had just been having a big uh, dinner and, and they saw this naked man in the lift. He had found a paper doily uh, on a tea tray uh, that he was holding in a strategic place but uh, but I don't know how, how successful it was but anyway he uh, Yes, eventually he got back to his room, but it was uh, yeah, it was a story um, that he dined out on. Oh gosh, for years early in his career, because it was it happened in his fairly early days as a newspaper writer. But once once you've actually dried your eyes off from the the tears of laughter about that, he he then goes on and talks about the arrangement to meet glamorous lady at Heathrow ahead of weekend of passion in Paris, only to find he got glamorous uh, mixed up with one that actually wasn't. I mean, having a character like that around must have brightened your every day. Well, yes, so we had a lot of fun with it. Really, it was it was great. In the early days, of course, of doing the show. We were still sort of slotting in stories and uh, news stories that we had. It was rather sort of, oh, gosh, I just remembered that in the middle of the show. And they thought, I'll just try it in. But of course, the other person hadn't heard it before. And there'd be a slight look of panic. Where's this going? (laughs) 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 We were doing it to each other, really, all the time, I think. Uh, But eventually, I think we we honed it a bit more. Christopher Martin Jenkins' love of technology must have been up there as equally amusing. I mean, trying to make a phone call with a with a television remote control to file copy to the Times. He was the most organised commentator in the world, but it was the only organised part of his entire life. The rest of it was utter chaos. He was uh, he was extraordinary. He was always late for everything. I don't think he'd ever seen in his entire career the first ball of a cricket match. It was just one of those things he, he always discovered the, the match was going on when he got there. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, but he was a superb commentator after all that, despite um, all that, I should say. Some of the funniest tales uh, surround travel, visits to the subcontinent. I mean, don't always run smoothly, as anybody who's been there on holiday will tell you. And most of us have had a few memorable flights in our time, but yours... Uh, yours don't even bear contemplating. I mean, the thought of being uh, being denied landing and having David Gower in the cockpit all at the same time is just it's just a recipe for again a farce of a movie. Yeah, yes, the uh, the pilot sort of making on a daily flight. I mean, this flight happened regular as clockwork. Well, as near as regular as clockwork as anything happened in those parts. Um, and uh, he arrives in the skies over Bombay, and the control tower 
demands to know who he is and says he's not on the list. <laughs> and we, we flew backwards and forwards. The most of us in, in the plane were unaware of why we were flying uh, into the hinterland and back out over the sea and that's sort of several times, about seven passes over Bombay before we actually were allowed to land. And, and Gower, as, as captain of the, of the cricket team, had been invited to the cockpit for the landing. So he was able to tell us uh, how the conversation had gone and this rather hysterical air traffic controller who eventually <laughs> let us down with a oh all right then but don't make a habit of it this was after he told him that well, you better let us land because we haven't got enough fuel yeah well that was the pilot's way of <laughs> making sure he got down and wasn't I mean, told to go to delhi or something <laughs> oh, it's fabulous i mean you went on to experience everything didn't you from the expected issues of long stays on the subcontinent to things yes. that weren't quite i mean being held up by bandits on a coach in the middle of the night i mean this is yeah, just well, another <laughs> everyday happening <laughs> yeah well exactly these, these are the sort of things but, but as you say there are things we've well, been going back to christopher martin jenkins when he was suddenly, as I say, he was late for everything, including usually handing over at the end of a commentary stint. But there was the time in Calcutta when he rose from the microphone uncharacteristically early and shot past me in the back of the box saying, I'm going back to the hotel for a comfortable one. I could see him going across the Maidan behind the cricket ground back towards the hotel, uh, trying to accelerate, but only from the knees downwards. <laughs> But the rumour is that he made it in time, so that's all right. <laughs> now, you toured the uh, the show, not only, of course, in the in the UK, but you also toured to, to Australia. Uh, how did the show go down with the Aussie cricket fans? Well, we had, we, uh, I suppose our audiences, the, um, England were, were on tour, though, it was during an Ashes series. So there were a fair number of... Um, uh, Englishmen in, in every audience. I think our first one was probably just about majority English um, because they'd uh, the agents had done a good job of, of putting flyers in all the tour hotels where the tourists were staying so that you know, they'd see what that we were on. Um, but gradually I think we got a more Australian audience every time and uh, it went down pretty well, although I do remember a question when we did our third show in Sydney towards the end, a question from the audience was, um, why are the Poms using so many foreigners in their team? And um, Blowers looked a bit bemused by that. And, and uh, I, um, and Tim Lane, who was the Australian we'd taken on with us, also didn't think he, he was qualified to answer. So I just said, well, I think they're just following the example of the Australian rugby team. Brilliant. It's and with the brilliant. current World Cup on, you, you, all you have to do is watch Australia to find that it's still the case. <laughs> it, you know, when it came to the, to, to the end of the book, did I sort of detect a note of, uh, of sadness that, uh, that it oh, had yes. come to an end? Oh, I think I, I miss it. I certainly miss doing it very much. But, you know, everything. We did it for five and a half years. And that's probably about the lifetime it should have. I don't know. Uh, we, I think we were getting to the point where we'd have had to try and reincarnate it. And whether we had another show's worth of stories to put out, I don't know. I suppose we might have done. Um, I had sort of started to think of, uh, of how we might base it and do, do more. Some of the more obscure characters who worked on Test Match Special, people like Alan Gibson. And, but th these are people who... who um, to a certain extent, uh, 
except real diehard fans from 50 years ago, they might have forgotten. Listen, the, the, uh, the one story I'll finish with, because I have done this, and if there are any uh, commentators listening to this, then they will have done it to their guests as well, which is sit there with your colour commentator or your co-commentator, whatever you want to call it, and uh, pretend you're on air when you're not. Uh, yes. well, boycott, boycott got done. Boycott. It, it was a belter. It was, Agus, who is very good at those sort of things. We were in South Africa and our commentary was on Radio 4 Longwave, but we were also doing it for South African radio, who were doing half an hour in Afrikaans and half an hour in English. But there came a point in the morning where most mornings, and I said to Agus, um, we're not actually on the air for the next quarter of an hour to anybody, but keep keep going for the recordings. Um, and he made absolutely sure. Now, we're not broadcasting live to anybody. I said, no. And Boycott sat next to him in, in complete ignorance um, of this fact. And Agus kept on going as if he was doing it live. But he said, and Mike Atherton was playing almost wonderful match-saving innings. But it was, it was defensive, obviously. He was up against it. Uh, and as, as he blocked another one, and he said, uh, Agus said, because it's not very exciting cricket, but then, Geoffrey, you're, you're a pretty boring player yourself. <laughs> Geoffrey looked a bit surprised. Ah, and, ah. and as Atherton blocked mm -hmm. another one, he said, oh, yes. Oh, gosh, you were boring. He said, they used to say that um, Ian Botham would empty the bar, you would fill it, as Atherton blocked another one. And, and then he said, uh, uh, finally, finished with the, God, you were boring. We welcome back Radio 4 <laughs> listeners. We haven't been on the air to anyone, but Jeffrey Boycott thought we were. <laughs> One final thing about this. Going back to the uh, the, the famous, the, the infamous Lego uh, commentary, which I saw very recently was voted the, the best ever piece of, of radio commentary, sports commentary. Which is bizarre because it wasn't actually commentary, but yes, it, it, and it was after all a mistake. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that, that was an extraordinary thing. We started doing, because a lot of people play the whole thing, which you have to give it two minutes if you do that. Um, and when you're standing on stage, that's not very good. But anyway, I wanted to tell the story of what was going on behind the scenes while all this chaos uh, was raining. And so what we did was just use the laugh at the end when, when Jonas starts wheezing. Because uh, <laughs> it, it was, there, there was a moment when Brian always claimed... Uh, that uh, after Agus had said, yes, he couldn't quite get his leg over, Brown, he gave a little hiccup, but he kept going, and he, he insisted that he was more professional than at any other time in his career. But unfortunately, <laughs> it was only for 30 seconds. <laughs> and then, then he said, because um, Agus was, was sitting there with his shoulders heaving in great mouth, <laughs> his own joke, um, and uh, Brian... Uh, just said, oh, do stop it, Agus. And at that point, having just had time to think we might get away with it, I knew we were completely stuffed. And sure enough, you know, the handkerchief came out of his pocket, the tears started rolling down his face, and he wheezed, oh, Agus, do stop it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, if you're, if you're having a bad day, or what if you put that on, it, it lightens and brightens anybody's day. I play it to audiences if I do speeches sometimes, and... Um, They've all heard it before, and yet they're all howling with laughter. Brand's laughter was so infectious, you just could, you can't avoid it, as you say, really. 
And how about we finish this chat by hearing that legendary piece of commentary just one more time. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He tried to step over the stumps and just flicked a bail with his, with his right he hand. He more or less tried to do the splits over it, and unfortunately uh, the inner part of his thigh must have just removed the bail. He just, just didn't quite get his leg over. Anyhow, he, he did very well indeed, batting 131 minutes and hit three fours. And um, then we had Lewis playing extremely well for his 47 not out. Agus, do stop it. Uh, and he was joined by De Freitas, who um, was in for 40 minutes, a useful little partnership there. Uh, they put on 35 in 40 minutes, and then he was caught by Dujanoff Walsh. Um, Lawrence, uh, always entertaining, batted for 30, 35. 35 minutes, hit a four over the week keepers. Beggars, <laughs> for goodness sake, stop it. Hit a four. Yes, Lawrence, well, Lawrence played extremely well. He hit a four over the week keeper's head, and he was out for the And Tuffle came and in 12 minutes, and then was caught by Haynes on Patson for two, and there were 54 extras, and he got all out for 419. I've stopped laughing now. Well, he might have, but the nation never will. On the boards with Blowers by Peter Baxter, with a forward there by Henry Blofeld, is at for sale now, priced eight ninety nine. And so it's time to take a monthly look at what the best-selling books are as we move, of course, into the busiest period of the year for booksellers of the Christmas market, which will be becoming flooded in the next few weeks with products. But at the moment, well, Peter Crouch's iRobot had to be a footballer, the highest ranked on Amazon at number two. Jensen Button is new at number three with How to Be an F1 Driver. Peter Crouch again back at number eight with How to Be a Footballer at one. You wouldn't have thought there was two books in that, would you? Uh, then at number 10, we have the match of the day annual for 2020 at 24. It's 20 years of talk sport. The match annual for 2020 is at 28 and a couple of places below. It is football school, star players and 50 inspiring stories of true football. Those the top sellers then in sport in Amazon. Not an inspiring list, is it? Over at Waterstones again, Peter Crouch is well represented, as indeed is Jensen Button. Uh, Michael Owen's reboot as well, still apparently selling well, as is the very well-received How Not To Be a Professional Racing Driver by the always hugely entertaining and amusing Jason Plato. And you've got to say that any book that begins, and I quote... My name is Jason Plato, two-time championship-winning and record-breaking racing driver, TV presenter, voice-over artist, pilot, bonviveur, hedonist, robber, and former inmate of the Monaco Police Department, and a living, breathing example of what you shouldn't do if you want to become a professional racing driver. Uh, he goes on, that's who I am. I drink, I smoke, I don't go to the gym, and I rarely stick to the script when I'm talking to the media. All in all, sounds like an interesting way to while away a few hours. 
Also doing well, Chris McDougall's book, Born to Run. Now, this is for all of you who thought that the Kenyans and, to a lesser degree, the Ethiopians were the only decent distance runners of this world. Well, they are not. The Tarahumara, who are reputed to be the very, very best in 1993, so it says one of them, aged 57, came first in a 100-mile race wearing a toga and sandals. Uh, and also just released The Three Kings by Leo Moynihan and Johnny Owen, which looks at the lives of three of the greatest football coaches these shores have ever produced, all born within a 20-mile radius of each other. The story is then of Matt Busby, Bill Shankly and Jock Steen. Those then the best-selling sports books in the UK at the moment. Over to the USA and the top 10 from the New York Times at number 10. All the way, My Life in Four Quarters, number nine, For the Good of the Game by Bud Selig. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball, and he goes deep into how he was involved in reshaping the game for the 21st century. At number eight, If These Walls Could Talk by Jack Remy and Nick Cafardo. Now, Remy was the former Boston Red Sox player and broadcaster, and he takes you inside one of the most iconic names in MLB history. Next, it is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. This is Memoirs of an Obsession, and in this case, the obsession is surfing. At number six, it is Wolfpack by one of the modern-day greats of women's international soccer, as they call it over there. Of course, it is Abby Wambach's book. And number five, Never Settle by Marty Smith. He's an ESPN reporter for the College Game Day program. Uh, this is his life, basically. At number four, The Boys in the Boat. Daniel James Brown's book telling the story of the nine American rowers from Washington and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Olympic Games. At three, it is The Sixth Man, which is a memoir from the NBA star Andre Iguodala with Carvel Wallace. Number two, it is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is still selling in huge numbers, despite the fact it's in its third year. Funny enough, actually, I bought this after seeing it very recently in HMV as part of a two-for-a-fiver deal. So look it out in there if you can find it. A simply brilliantly told story of how to start with basically nothing and end up as being everybody's favourite billionaire. And at number one, it is Range by David Epstein. Why generalists triumph in a specialised world, he examined some of the most successful athletes and musicians, to name a few, and discovered that generalists, as opposed to specialists, are primed to excel. As for the reviews of the book themselves, the one I liked the most came from Malcolm Gladwell. He said, For reasons I can't explain, David Epstein manages to make me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told that everything I thought about something was wrong. I loved range. And that rounds up our look at the bestsellers from the UK and the USA for this month. And that just about wraps up the first episode of Talking Sports Books. But before we go, we'd like to get you involved in the show as well by letting us know 
what it is that you're reading and what recommendations that you've got for a great sporting book. Now, this can be any book. It doesn't have to be new either. It can be something from as far back as you want to go. Uh, All you need to do is when you listen via the Anchor podcast app, you'll see right next to where it says play, send voice message. And all you do is click and speak. You've got 60 seconds to do it. Don't worry if you get it wrong first time. You can re-record it as many times as you like. Uh, Once we get a few of those, we'll look through some of the best ones and we'll make a, a small feature, including you, in the next shows. For the moment, though, from me, Tim Cable, thanks for listening and we look forward to having your company again soon. For the moment, though, bye bye.